Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Welcome back, everybody, to Pushing the Limits. Today, I have Dr. Don Wood, who is sitting in Florida. And Dr. Don is uh, a wonderful man. He is a trauma expert. He is someone who had a problem in his own family and sought about finding a solution. He is the developer of the TIP method, T-I-P-P method, and spent years researching and to understand how our minds affect our bodies. Um, Dr. Wood made the connection between trauma and health issues. In addition, he recognized the daily stress that people live with when they've been through trauma and that the only solutions provided in the normal conventional world are medications. But his experience with his family provided the determination required to develop a cutting-edge neuroscience approach, a real holistic solution that provides immediate and long-lasting lasting relief for people who have been through trauma of any sort, whether it's small or large. The TIP program developed by Dr. Wood has benefited individuals all over the world, and he really wanted to create a solution that removed the stigma of trauma. Too many people are afraid to ask for help because of that stigma, and that's why he named the program around increasing performance levels. The name of his institute is the Inspired Performance Institute. I really love this uh, episode with Dr. Don Wood. He is a lovely, amazing person with a way of helping people get rid of PTSD, get rid of trauma out of their lives so that they can get on with being the best versions of themselves. And that's what we're all about here. He's worked with everyone from uh, soldiers coming back from wars to uh, victims of the Boston Marathon bombing campaign to highly successful executives and world-class athletes. Um, yeah, he's He's been there, done that. So I really hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Wood. Before we head over to the show, I just want to remind you, we have our new premium membership for the podcast, Pushing the Limits, now out there. Uh, it's a patron page, so you can be involved with the program, with the podcast. We've been doing this now for five and a half years. It is a labor of love, and we need your help to keep this great content coming to you and so that we can get the ex- best experts in the world and deliver this information direct to your ears. It's a passion that's been mine now for five and a half years, and you can get involved with it you get a whole lot of premium member benefits and uh, you get to support this cause which we're really really grateful for for all those who have joined us on the patron program thank you very very much you know pretty much for the price of a cup of coffee a month you can get involved so check that out at patron.lisatarmaty.com that's patron p-a-t-r-o-n dot lisatarmaty.com And just reminding you too, we still have our epigenetics program going. And this, we have now taken hundreds and hundreds of people through this program. It's a game-changing program that really gives you insights into your genetics and how to optimize your lifestyle to optimize your genes, basically. So everything from your fitness, what types of exercise to do, what times of the day to do it, what... um, whether you're good at the long distance stuff or whether you'll be better more as a power-based athlete, whether you need more agility, whether you need more work through the spine. Oh, there's just information that's just uh, so 
personalized to you, but it doesn't just look at your fitness. It looks at your food, the exact foods that are right for you. And it goes way beyond that as well as to what are the dominant neurotransmitters in your brain, how they affect your mood and behavior, what your dominant hormones are, the implications of those, your predispositions for any uh, disorders in the future so that we can head all those off at the past. That's not deterministic. That is really giving you a heads up. Hey, this could be a direction that you need to be concerned about in the future and here's what you can do about it. So come and check out our program. Go to lisatarmody.com and under the button work with us, you'll find our peak epigenetics program. Check that out today and maybe even come and join us on one of our live webinars or one of our pre-recorded webinars if you want. You can reach out to me, lisa at lisatarmody.com and I can send you more information about the epigenetics program. Right now over to the show with Dr. Don Wood. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Pushing the Limits. This week, I have another amazing guest for you. I've found some pretty big superstars over the years, and this one is going to be very important to listen to. I have Dr. Don Wood. Welcome to the show, Dr. Don. Thank you, Lisa. I'm excited to be here. Oh, it's just going to be a very interesting and it's a, a long anticipated interview for me. And Dr. Don is sitting in uh, Florida, um, and you've got a very nice temperature today, you said. Oh, it's absolutely gorgeous. Low <laughs> 80s, no humidity. I mean, you just, like I said, you couldn't pick a better day. It's perfect. Oh, very good. <laughs> I would have tried to sit outside and do this, but I was afraid somebody would start up a lawnmower. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, podcast life. I've just yeah. had the cat wandering, so he's probably going to start meowing <laughs> in a moment. Um, yeah. Now, Dr. Don, you are a... Uh, uh, author, a speaker, a trauma expert, you are the founder of the Inspired Performance Institute. Can you give us a little bit of background of how did you get to where you are today and what you do? Well, it's sort of an interesting story. Um, I really started the Inspired Performance Institute because of my wife and daughter, more so my daughter than anything else. Um, I talk about this, is that I led this very, very quiet, idyllic kind of childhood with no trauma, um, never had anything ever really happened to me, you know, bumps along the way, but nothing kind of that would be considered trauma. And I lived in a home that was so loving and nurturing that even if I got bumped a little bit during the day, you know, was I, when I was a kid, I'm coming home to this beautiful environment that would just regulate my nervous system again. Wow. So I believe that that was critical in terms of having my nervous system always feeling safe. Mm -hmm. And that really resulted in amazing health. I mean, I've been healthy all my life. Um, and as an adult, when things would happen, I could automatically go back into that nervous system regulation because I had trained it without even knowing it, yep. that I was able to get back into that. Wow! And so uh, when I met my wife, I realized that she was not living in that world. And, and amazingly enough, Lisa, I thought everybody lived like me because <laughs> I had no idea that a lot of my friends were being traumatized at home, that I had no idea because, you know, everybody's on their best behavior. If I come over, yeah. you know, everybody's behaving themselves and you don't see it. My friends a lot of times wouldn't share it because of either shame or guilt. Mm -hmm. I mean, my wife, nobody knew what was going on in their home. Yeah. And uh, she had one best friend that knew, you know, that was about it. And if you met her father, who was really the, the 
bad guy in this whole thing, everybody thought he was the greatest guy yeah. because outwardly he came across as this generous, hardworking, loving kind of guy, loved his family, but he just ran his home with terror. Wow. And it's so, terrific. oh, yep. it was terrible. So when I met my wife, I realized, wow, this, because we got close very quickly because I had a chance to play professional hockey in Sweden mm -hmm. when I was 18. So we got married at 19. Wow. So very quickly, really I was around her a lot, you know, while we were sort of getting ready for that. So I got to see the fam family dynamic up close very quickly. Mm. And that's when I realized, boy, she's not living in that world, which is living in fear all the time. Mm. And that's why, you know, I, I sat down with her one day and I just said, you know, tell me what's going on here, because I can sense this tension in here. I could sense that there was a lot of fear going on, you know, what's going on. And she started, you know, sharing it with me, but swore me to secrecy. Mm. Like I could never tell anybody because of all that shame and guilt, because yep. nobody really outside the home would have been aware of it. Or probably and, believed it. Or believed it. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, it was, it was again that, what will people think about me? What will they think about my family? That's really common when yep. you have people who have experienced trauma like that. And so, you know, I, I, uh, you know, sort of followed along and said, okay, you know, this will be our secret. But I thought to myself, well, this will be great now because I'm going to get her out of that home yep. and she's going to be living in my world. So everything will just calm down and she'll be feeling that peace that I've experienced all my life. <laughs> and <I just laughs> not quite so happen. simple. <laughs> so I was like, well, how is this not helping? Mm -hmm. Like why now her, she's living in the world that I grew up in because I was very much like my father. I, I wasn't going to, you know, yell at her or scream at her or do anything that would have, you know, made her fear fearful, but she was still living in fear. Yep. And Honda. if, yeah. And if I said something like, no, I don't like that, she could tear up and start going, why are you mad at me? Yeah. And I would be like, my God, like, where did you get? I was mad at you from what I just said. That made no sense to me mm. at the time. Now I understand it perfectly. Mm. What I didn't realize at the time was that people who have been traumatized are highly sensitive to sound. Hypervigilant and hyper, hyper yeah. yeah, aware yeah. of noise and people yep. raising their Any voices. Any kind of noise. Yep. And what she also, as a child, she had learned to listen very carefully to the way her father spoke so that she could then recognize any kind of the slightest little change in my vocal tone. So if I had been a little frustrated with something at work that day or, you know, some other thing that was nothing related to her, she could pick up on that tone change. And then in her mind, what her mind would be doing is saying, you know, what do we know about men when they start to get angry? And a whole bunch of data and information about her father would come flooding in and overstimulate her nervous system. So that's like I, the Google search. It's doing a, a Google search and going, hey, have I had this experience before? Yep. And picking out, yep, we've been there before. This is not yep. good. This is dangerous. This is scary. Yep. And, and that's actually what um, led me to the research that I did, mainly because of my daughter, though. So my wife lived with that. She had developed Hashimoto's. Um, so she had, you know, this thyroid issue with, because she, she was constantly in a fight or flight state. Yeah. More cortisol. flight than anything. Wow. Yeah. And cortisol. And so when my daughter was 14, uh, she was diagnosed with Crohn's and they just told us that you're just going to have to, you know, 
learn to live with this and she's going to be on medication for the rest of her life and we'll just continue to cut out pieces of her intestines until she has nothing left and she'll wow. have a colostomy bag that's just the way it is oh and so and she's my wife 14 was, years old she was 14 yeah she ended up having four resections done she would go down to you know 90 85 pounds she gets so sick the poor thing you know because she just couldn't eat yep and um, she couldn't hold anything down and they just told us there were no answers. My wife did unbelievable research trying to come up with answers and really couldn't come up with anything except this management system that they had mm. been given her. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was adopted. So we didn't know my family history. Yeah. So our family doctor was my grandfather. And I didn't know this until I was 18, though. Oh, wow. I always knew I was adopted. But um, my mother shared the story with me when I was 18 that he came to my parents and said, I have a special child I want you to adopt, right? And I guess he just knew that my parents were just amazing people. And, Mm. you know, at that time, you know, unwed mothers, that was considered, you know, a shame, Mm. right? You didn't talk about that. So that was a quiet adoption. In fact, his um, wife didn't even know about it. which would have been my grandmother. And that's, it's it's interesting, the story, because I should share this too, because, what happened was, is I, I never understood why my birth certificate was dated two years after my my uh, birthday. <laughs> and what happened was, is that my parents adopted me like immediately upon birth. But my grandmother found out about it. His wife found out about it and sued my parents to get me back. Oh. And so they had to go into this legal battle for two years. Oh, wow. Now, I remember when I was really, really young. I used to get these really bad stomach pains and I, and they took me, I remember going to doctors. I was really young. I remember going to doctors, but my grandfather was very holistic at the time for an MD. So, you know, I was on cod liver oil and, you know, all these different things like, and so what he said to him, he says, no, he's just stressed out because of the stress in the home. You have to take the stress out of this home. He's feeling it. Yep. Right. So and and not that my parents were yelling and screaming. Oh, way ahead. (laughs) But what he realized was that because it was so hard financially for them, that had a major effect on their life. So I guess I was feeling it. Mm -hmm. And so they went out of their way to take all the stress out. Wow. And so that created it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So it created this unbelievable, unusual home life. And so I never had any real tension in the home. Wow. But that was, I guess, as my wife said, we were the perfect Petri dishes for this because I was living what we want to be, right? And she was living in the opposite world of what a lot of people do live in. And so at least I knew what the, um, the model was of what we were going for. And when we're so, exposed to trauma very early in life, it has a much bigger impact on our health and, and everything than when it happens later in life. Is that right? Absolutely. Because we, we've we never learned how to balance our system. So then it stays, you know, in dysregulation a lot more than it did. And that's really what sort of led me to develop the program is I realized that when my daughter was 16, she disclosed to us some sexual abuse that she had had when she was like six years of age that we had no idea. Mm. So my wife was obviously, both of us were devastated, but my wife was extremely, she had experienced, you know, sexual abuse as a child and thought she would never let that happen to her child. Yeah. So now my poor wife has also got a new 
you know, trauma added on to her. And so that's where it really came down to is, you know, she said to me, you've got to research this and find out what's going on because I have no answers. And that's when I started to research and I made the connection between trauma, right? And these autoimmune issues, for example, that my wife had and my daughter had. Wow. And so what I discovered is that I believe that unresolved trauma creates inflammation in the body. The inflammation compromises the immune system Mm -hmm, and your mm -hmm. neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. So we start getting sick and we start feeling bad because our neurotransmitters, serotonin is produced mostly in the gut. Mm -hmm. So if the serotonin is affected by the inflammation, which it was for my daughter, right? She's not going to feel good. And, uh, And then that just leads to a host of other problems. And it's it's really really sad that the only solution that we currently are using is to teach people to live and manage and cope with it coping yeah so we we, we we you know which is which is good you know we're learning things how to cope with anxieties and breath work and all that sort of good stuff but it's not getting to the root cause of the problem and being able to to deal with it so when we're in a in a high you know a heightened state of 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 stress and cortisol and we're taking energy away from our immune system and and blood literally away from the gut and and from our neurotransmitter production and all of that sort of thing. So is that what's going on and why it actually affects the body? Because this mind-body connection, which we're really only in the last, well, maybe decade or 15 years or something, really starting to to dig into, isn't it? Like there's, and there's still a massive disconnect in the conventional medical world where this is the mind and this is the body and, you know, from here up and here down, you know, um, and it's separate. North ball, and, South ball, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it, it, we're one thing, you know. Um, and so this has a massive effect on our health and, and can lead to all sorts of, you know, autoimmune diseases or even cancers and, and so on. Um, so you were at this time, so you didn't have the Inspired Performance Institute at this stage. What were you doing professionally? And then, you know, did you go back and do a PhD in, in, yeah. in this? Wow. I, I've always been an entrepreneur all my life. So right. I was in financial services. We, we did a number of different things. We, My son and I still have an energy business. We do solar and energy and stuff like that. But oh, wow. I decided if I was going to do this, I needed to go back and really study. So I went back and got my, went back to school, got my PhD. Wow. And, um, you know, to, to really, to try to add the credibility, number one, to mm. what I was doing, because, you know, people are going to say, well, who are you? Yeah. You know, well, why should problem. we listen to you? You know, <laughs> you, you never had any trauma and you're supposed to be an expert. Like, how does that work? <laughs> you know, it's the same thing with addiction. You know, I, I help people with addiction. I've never had a drink in my life, never touched a drug in my life. And I say, but I know what addiction is. Yeah. You know, I don't believe addiction is a disease. I believe it's a code. It gets yeah. built from pain. Yeah. yeah, let's dig into that a little bit, and then we'll go back to your daughter's story because <laughs> um, addiction, you know, it's something I, I know from a genetic perspective. I have um, a tendency toward a, towards having addictive uh, nature, personality traits. Um, I chase dopamine a lot. <laughs> I have, right. a, have a deficit in, in dopamine receptors, and uh, so I'm constantly going after that reward. Now that's worked itself out in my life, and in running ridiculous, you know, kilometers and working 
ridiculous hours and um, not always in, in, in negative things. Luckily, I've never had problems with drinking or drugs, but I know that if I had started down that road, I would have ended up probably doing it, you know, very well. <laughs> yeah. um, so you would have been a star in that. I field. would have been a star in that as well. Um, and luckily, I was sort of a, a little bit aware of that. And my parents never drank, and they, you know, um, had made sure that we, we we had a good relationship with things like that, and not a bad one. Um, have struggled with food though. That's definitely one of the emotional sort of things that, and I think a lot of people have uh, um, some sort of bad relationship with food in some sort of way, shape or form um, on the spectrum, so to speak. What is it that causes addiction and is it a physical dependency or is there something more to it? Yeah, that's why I don't believe it's a physical dependency, because here's the way I look at it is people will say to me, well, if I stop this heroin, the body's going to crave the heroin and I'm going to go into withdrawal. And my response to that is, how could the body crave a substance that it doesn't know? It doesn't regulate heroin. How could it crave something that doesn't regulate? I believe it's the mind has made a connection between the heroin and survival Mm -hmm. because you have felt bad right? Because of trauma or whatever it is, whenever you took the heroin, you felt better. So I had a lady come in who had been on heroin and she uh, said to me, she said, well, I told my therapist I'm coming to see you. And he told me, I have to let you know upfront and be honest and tell you I have self-destructive behavior. And I just smiled at her and I said, really, what would make you think you're self-destructive? And she looked at me because this is what she's been told for eight years. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And she says, well, I'm sticking a needle in my arm with heroin. Don't you think that's self-destructive? And I said to her, I said, no, I don't think it was self-destructive. I think you were trying to feel better. Mm. And I bet you when you stuck the needle in your arm, you felt better. Mm. Now, nobody had ever said that to her before. And so I said, now, the substance you're using is destructive but you're not destructive. Big I said, difference. what if I could show you another way to feel better that didn't require you having to take a drug? Wow. And I said, you're designed to feel better. And I believe that the brain, what happened is, is that because you felt bad, you found a resource that temporarily stopped that pain. And you see your subconscious mind is fully present in the moment. So when does it want pain to stop? Now. Right now. And if that heroin stops the pain right now, then what happened was, is that system, you have a two memory systems, you have explicit memory system Mm -hmm. that records all the information in real time. So it records all the data and stores. No other animal does that. We're the only animal that stores explicit details about events and experiences. We also have an associative procedural memory that we learn through association and repetition over time. So because the explicit memory kept creating the pain, because we kept thinking about it and looping through this pain cycle, you started taking heroin. Then you um, engaged your second associative memory, which learns through repetition and builds codes, habits, behaviors. Wow. Because you kept repeating it, your mind built a code and connected up the pain being relieved by the substance. Wow. Now, your, your, your subconscious mind is literal. So it doesn't understand negation. It only understands what's happening now. 
And so if your mind says that substance stops the pain, it doesn't look at the future and consequences of it. It only looks at what's happening. It's only our conscious mind that can think of consequences. Your subconscious mind, which is survival-based, only understands. That's why people at 9-11 would jump out of the buildings. They weren't jumping to die. They were jumping to stop from dying. Yeah. If they didn't jump, they would have died right now. So even if they went another two seconds, they weren't dying now. Right. So that it it's really it in the jump. right now. It's really oh, it's, in the, it's in in the, the seconds. In the very, very milliseconds of what's happening now. <sighs> and there's no such thing as consequences. It's basically survival. So now if you keep repeating that cycle over and over using heroin, and then somebody comes along and says, Lisa, you can't Takes do that. It. That's bad for you. I'm going to take that away from you. Your survival brain will fight to right. keep it because it thinks it'll die without it. Yeah, makes it's sense. It's a glitch. It's an error message. And, and, and have you heard of Doc, uh, had Dr. Austin Perlmutter on the show last week? Um, David Perlmutter's son, and they've both written a book called Brainwash. And, and there they talk about disconnection syndrome. So the disconnection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, and that mm-hmm. our amygdala can be more powerful when we're you know, when uh, when we have inflammation in the brain, for example, like inflammation through bad foods or toxins or mercury or whatever the case may be, um, and that this can also have an effect on our ability to make good long-term decisions and yep. makes us live in the here and now. So I want that heroin fix now. I want that chocolate bar now. And I know my logical thinking brain is going, but that's not good for you. And you shouldn't be doing that. And you, you're trying to overcome it, but you're there's this disconnect between your prefrontal cortex and your and your amygdala. And I've probably butchered that scenario no, a little you, bit. No, you but, got it. But ninety five percent of your mind is working on that subconscious yeah. survival base. It's yep. only about five percent that's logical. Yes. Now that logical part of your brain is brilliant because it's been able to use reason and logic to figure stuff out. So Mm. it's created the world we live in, automobiles, Mm. airplanes, right? Computers, all of that was created by that 5% intellectual part of the brain, 5%. It's amazing. (laughs) However, if there is a survival threat, right? Survival will always override reason and logic 100% of the time. Wow. So you can't stop it. And it's what I talk about was that time slice theory. Did did I mention that when we were talking? No, no. When I did my research, one of the things that I found was something called the time slice theory. And what that is, is that two scientists at the University of Zurich um, asked the question, is consciousness streaming? So this logical conscious part of our mind, that prefrontal cortex, is that information that we're, as you and I are talking now, is that real coming in in real time? And what they discovered is it's not. Oh. The 95% subconscious part of your mind, it's streaming. Wow, that's So your survival brain takes in everything in real time, processes that information, and then only sends pieces or time slices because your conscious mind could not handle that detail. Oh, wow. So it's filtering it. It's filtering it. And yeah, so as it takes it in, it processes it. And then sends time slices or some of that information to your conscious mind, mm-hmm. right? But there's a 400 millionth of a second gap in mm. between the, your subconscious seeing it 
processing it and sending it. And when I read that, that's when I came up with the idea that what's it doing in that 400 millionths of a second? It's doing a Google search. See, is this dangerous? And so in that 400 millionths of a second, your survival brain has already calculated a response to this information before you're consciously aware of it. Wow. And And so the prefrontal cortex has got a filter on there to be able to um, stop an impulse, right? So it's the, the, the ventral lateral prefrontal cortex is sort of the gatekeeper to say, okay, let's not go into a rage and get into trouble. Let's try to stop that. So we have that part of our brain. However, here's where the problem comes in. You're driving in traffic and somebody cuts you off. And so your first response is you get angry because this person and it's like, oh, I want to chase that guy down and give him a piece of my mind. But that part of your brain can say, let's think about this. Hold on. You know, even though it's 400 millions of a second later, the first anger response, then it should be able to pull that back. Mm. Here's where the problem comes in. If getting cut off in traffic looked like you had been just disrespected. Yeah. During that Google search, your now your subconscious mind has filtered through every experience of being disrespected. And so much information comes in that it cannot stop the response. It overrides it because now it feels threatened. And our prisons are full of people who have had oh. been so badly hurt that that part of their brain can't do that. You and I can probably do that. Right. Because we sometimes. can say, you know, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> you can run them down. <laughs> so you don't leave a car. <laughs> but, but that's where the problem comes in. Yeah. If you can't stop that. Then that rage and all those things come in and that affects your relationships could affect all kinds of things. And people would say, oh, you've got an anger management problem. We're going to teach you to live with, you know, and and manage that anger. What I'm saying is, no, it's a glitch. We don't need all that data coming in, right? Google you should be search. able to respond. The Google search is creating the problem. Oh, look, there's just so many, sorry, I'm just like so many questions in my head when you just said that because, you know, and I've, I've experienced in my own life where um, in, 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 with my family um, where the that initial response and it is so quick that someone's punched someone else before they've even thought about what the heck they are doing. And that, um, when you said that disrespected, like this is, uh, you know, I think when, when, when I've gotten really, really angry and overreacted to something, when I think about it logically later, um, a couple of times where I've, like uh, in my, in my early uh, adult years, I was in a very abusive relationship thereafter when I would get into another relationship and that person tried to stop me doing something I would just go like into an absolute fit of rage because I was fighting what had happened to me previously and this poor person who may have not even meant anything bad got the full barrels you know of uh, a verbal assault because I just reacted to what had happened to me, you know, 10 years previously. Um, And that's the sort of thing where I felt like I was being controlled, disrespected, whatever. And so that Google search is happening in a millisecond. 
and uh, millionth of a second. Wow, it's just uh, and, and you and couldn't, this is, Lisa, you couldn't have stopped it. No. It was impossible for you to stop it. And then people would say, well, what's wrong with Lisa? Mm-hmm. Like she's just normally got anger you know, this great person. But where is that coming from? You, and up until now, you may not have known that, but that's what it is. And it's impossible for you to have stopped. It was the same thing with my wife when I would say, no, I don't like that. And she would start to cry. I'd be saying, gosh, like, what am I doing to make mm-hmm. this woman cry? Mm-hmm. It wasn't what I said. It was what I said that activated her Google search, which then flooded in the data about her father. She was responding to her father, not to me, Mm -hmm. but we both didn't know that. We all thought she was responding to what I just said. Isn't this, aren't we just such complex? And if you start to dissect this and start to think about the implications of all this and our behavior and our communication and our relationships, so much pain and suffering is happening because we're not understanding. We're not, um, we're angry at people. We're disappointed with people. We're ashamed of things that we've done. And a lot of this is happening on a level that None of you know. None of us are actually aware of. I mean, I liken it to like I know that my reactions can sometimes be so quick. Like before my, like just in a positive sense. Like if a glass is falling off the bench, I would have caught it with my back hand before my brain has even registered it. Like I've always had a really fast reaction to things like that. Yep. Uh, that's a that's a clear example of like that primitive brain that that's in the here and now has caught it before I've even realized that's happening. Um, uh, you know, and that's why I always say to people, "Did you choose to do that?" And they'll say, "Well, I guess I did." And I go, "No, you didn't." It just happened. That happened before you could actually use the logical part of your brain, and because it was so. Um, much information, right? Even though the logical part of your brain would say, well, you know, don't lash out at this person. They didn't mean that. Mm. It would already happened. Yeah. I, I worked with a professional athlete. He was a baseball player uh, playing in the major leagues. And I explained that concept to him. And then we were at a um, one of his practice workouts and his pitcher was throwing him batting practice behind a screen. And so as he threw the ball, this guy, the, my client hit the ball right back at the screen and the coach like hit the ground, right? And I stopped right there and I said, great example. I said, did your coach just choose to duck? <laughs> <laughs> or did he automatically do it? He had no, he had no time to no, choose. Exactly. Now, the logic, if you used the logical part of your brain, what would you have said? This ball can't hit me. There's a screen in front of me. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> but you're not that, being logical. There's no way logic is going to prevail when there's a threat like that coming at you. Yeah, and this is why it's important because we need to be able to react in that split second if there really is a danger and there's a bullet flying at our head or something like that or something somebody's coming at us from to do us harm, then we need to be able to react with split second timing. But you don't where want it that becomes, logic coming into it. No, but we do want the logic coming in when it's an emotional response. Do you think like um, uh, when people have had repeated brain injuries that they are more likely to have problems with this, you know, the prefrontal cortex not functioning properly and even being slower to respond or not getting enough blood flow to that prefrontal cortex in order to make these good decisions? Yeah, Um, absolutely. And and if you look at spec scans or brain scans of people who have had those kinds of injuries, you'll see that 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 part of the brain, that frontal um, part of the brain, the blood flow will drop. 
when they get into those situations. Wow. And then they can't make a good decision. And here we Impossible. are blaming them for being. Blaming them. And then and we they put end them up in, in prisons and they end up with, you know, broken lives and terrible trauma. And, you know, it's not good if they react and hit somebody or, or kill somebody or, or whatever. But how can we fix this? And one of my go-tos is um, the hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And I've heard yep. you talk about that on a on a, a podcast with, like, with Mark Devine in regards to your son. Um, yep. And that is one way we can actually help our brains if we've had a had a traumatic brain injury or PTSD or anything like that. Is that right? Yeah. My, like I said, my son had three head injuries, one in elementary school, one in middle school, one in high school. And the first one, we didn't see as big an effect, but he, uh, you know, did have a problem. The second one, he ended up with retrograde amnesia. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the third one, we just saw him go downhill and just really couldn't, um, communicate very well, didn't have any energy, had a lot of anger issues. And they just kept saying, he's got major depression. You need to medicate him. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, I I believe he's got traumatic brain injury. But I could not get them to give me a script for a spec scan or an fMRI. It was impossible. And I wasn't looking for the structure because they'd look at an MRI and they'd say, we don't see any damage. Mm. Well, it it wasn't the physical damage we were looking for. It was the functional damage that we the were blood looking flow. for. Yeah. And once we discovered that that's what it was, we got him into hyperbaric oxygen therapy and he started getting the blood flow into the areas that he needed to process what he was experiencing. And so if you can't, you can imagine how difficult it would be, you know, if somebody's saying, well, just go over there and do that. And you don't have the, the ability the to process it. Yeah. And so that frustration, his anger would be coming from just complete frustration. Yeah. That he just couldn't do it. It's like, you know, you ran and somebody and you couldn't lift your right leg. Yeah. Right. And somebody's saying, just start running. Yeah. Right. And you go, I'm trying. Yeah. Yeah. It would be very, very frustrating. Yeah. I mean, having worked with, you know, my mum with a brain injury for five and a half years. And I can tell you, man, that is so frustrating. And still, even though like she's had, well, you know, must be close to 280 or something uh, hyperbaric sessions and, you know, gone from being not much over a vegetative state to being now incredibly high functioning. But there are still some pieces missing that I cannot get. <laughs> like there's obviously damage in the brain where parts of the, the brain cells are have been killed off and when we, you know, I'm really having trouble with things like vestibular system so, um, mm-hmm. or initiation of, of motivation and things like that. Um, and you know, hyperbaric can do a heck of a lot. It can't fix areas of the brain that have actually dead. Um, yep. So, I, you know, and we don't have spec scans over here. It's just not available. We don't do them. Yeah. And they're hard so to get here. They're very they frustrating because them. they just are so powerful to understand. Because when you see you've got a problem in your head, that it's actual yep. physical problem, then, you know, it takes away the blame, the guilt. And, you know, like uh, I was having this conversation when yesterday with my brother and my, you know, talking about mum and why isn't she doing this, that and the other yet? And I said, because she's got brain damage and we can't get her to do that thing. But she's normal now. She should be doing that now. And I'm like, eh, she's much, much better. But in that part of the brain, I haven't been able to recover. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it, it is still a thing. That is there. That is that, and not that I'm giving up on it. But you know, there are just certain things that we haven't quite got the full thing back. Um, and this the is why the spec scan would show that. 
Yeah. And that you'd probably see it. Or can, do they do fMRIs there? I haven't checked out fMRIs because I only heard. Yeah. I, I only heard you say that the other day. And I didn't, I knew about spec scans and I knew about Dr. Harch and all the spec scans that he's done and Dr. Daniel Amen and mm-hmm. um, uh, their brilliant work on it all. And I've searched the country for it in New Zealand. There's, they've got one that does research stuff down in Dunedin, I think, but that's it. Nobody can get access to it. Um, and it's just like, oh, gosh, this is just such a tragedy because then we can actually see what's going on because people have been put on antidepressants. They've been put on, you know, antipsychotic drugs and things that are perhaps not necessary. You know, we could have we could have dealt with it with other other ways like hyperbaric and like with, you know, good nutrients and even you know, like your program that you do that would perhaps be the yep. first line of defense before we grab to those types of things. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, so, the, the fMRI would definitely probably help you. So it's it's uh, you know a functional MRI. Yeah, I'll have so to it's going to give you blood flow. Mm. Um, I just had a young boy come in nine years nine years old who's uh, having real issues. And um, anyway, his mom's gone everywhere, tried everything, and I said, you know, have you done an fMRI? She said, well, we've done the MRIs, but. And I said, no, you need an fMRI. She'd never heard of it. No, Nobody was telling her about no, it. Right? No, I hadn't even heard of it. And she didn't about want to do spec space. scans because spec scans are, they're going to put something into your system, right? So she didn't want any kind of dyes or any kind of those, you know, radioisotopes and stuff like that. So the fMRI is the other answer to try to get that. Oh, okay. Well, I'll see whether they've got that. They probably haven't got that either, I'd say, <laughs> probably over here. <laughs> we in seem to be back yeah, in the dark hope. ages with a lot of things. <laughs> there's so many things like that that would give you answers that they just don't do, which is surprising to me because yeah, when you research them and you find out the, you know, how effective they are, why wouldn't they do it? Yeah, you know, I know. But they, they, they just won't. Well, yeah, like one of the doctors who was on my podcast and we we're talking about intravenous vitamin C and he said, I said, why is it taking so long when there's thousands of studies proving that it's really powerful when, you know, these critical care conditions like sepsis, what I lost my father to. And uh, he said, yeah, because it's like turning a super tanker. It just is mm-hmm. 20 years between what they know in the, the clinical studies to what's actually happening in the hospitals. He said, it's at least 20 year lag. And this is just. You know, when you live in New Zealand, probably 30-year leg, you know. Um, we're just, just behind the eight ball all the time in, in all of these areas of what's actually currently happening. Um, I wanted to go back now to, to, to your story with your daughter because you, you, like you've, you've, she's got Crohn's disease, 14 years old, diagnosed, having had all these resections and that she's going to have to manage it for the rest of her life and she'll never be well. What actually happened? Because we didn't actually finish that story. <laughs> well, like I said, so she had, you know, suffered for many years with that and she's an actress. So any kind of stress would just aggravate it. So she would, you know, constantly be getting sick because, you know, the more stress she has, the more inflammation she's creating. And then she would just get sick and go back in the hospital. So it was really affecting her career. So that's when my wife said, you know, you've got to come up with some answers. And so I did the research and I really believed that it was a trauma as a child that continued to loop because I, this is when I made the connection between unresolved trauma and inflammation. Okay. Inflammation is the response to trauma, whether it's physical or emotional. And the purpose of the inflammation is to protect the integrity of the cell. So the cell gets into an enlarged um, 
space. So it sort of puffs out, gets enlarged and hardened to protect it from getting penetrated from any kind of foreign invader. Wow. So the idea behind it is it's a temporary pause to, to because there's been an injury. So the idea is, is we need to protect this area. So let's protect it and not let anything get into the cells while until the danger has passed. Mm-hmm. So this temporary pause in the system temporarily suspends the immune system, temporarily spends the um, processing of the cell until the danger passes. And then the immune system can come in and clean up, right? And take, take care of everything. The problem was, is that my daughter's trauma was never resolved. Mm. So those cells in her intestinal area stayed in an active cell danger response in an inflamed response, because as far as it was concerned, she was continually being assaulted. Wow. Because it kept looping through the trauma. Yep. So once we took her through this program and we resolved it so that we were able to stop her mind from constantly trying to protect her from this threat as a six-year-old, because your subconscious doesn't have any relationship to time. So if you think about something that happened to you when you were six, that's happening now. So in her mind, she was being hurt now. And until we got that updated, so it's like a computer. I I say your brain is the computer. Mm -hmm. Your body is the printer. Oh, wow. And so if the brain has uh, an error message, it's going to affect the the printer. So in her mind, the trauma kept on looping. As soon as we got that corrected, and her mind understood that there was no memory, the memory was still there, but the activation of her nervous system stopped, the inflammation went down. So that's it, like if your body's calling for action. Action. I've heard you say. That's a purpose like, to yeah. an emotion. Yeah. So when you, when, you, when you think back to a traumatic event in your life and you start crying and you're, you're reacting as if you were right there and then, which, you know, I can do in a split second with some of the trauma that, you know, been through. That means that that is a high definition in your brain, that that, that those moments in time are just locked in there and causing this this stress response still now. That's why you're crying years later for something that happened. And it's actually calling for uh, action. It's it's telling you to do something, but, of course, it's it's a memory. You can't do There's something. There's no action required. No. That's, the, that's the glitch, the error message that I talk about. So if you think about something that happened to you five years ago and you start to feel fear or cry, your heart starts pounding in your chest, your mind is saying, run, Mm-mm. five years ago, because it's seeing it in real time. Wow. Now, it's impossible to run five years ago, but your mind doesn't know that. So it's going to continue to try to get you to run. And so a lot of times when I talk to people who have depression, one of the things I ask, I'll ask them is, what are you angry about? And they'll go, well, no, I'm not angry. I'm depressed. And I'll say, what's happened is, is your mind has been calling for an action for many, many years that was impossible to accomplish. But your mind doesn't know that. And it keeps putting pressure on you. Do it, do it, do it. And because you don't do it, it's using these emotions to call for the action. It stops calling for the action. It shuts off the emotions. Wow. And so now depression is the absence of emotion. Right. right? And so what it's done is to protect you, it shut down shuts the request. everything down. So you go sort of numb. Numb. And, 
apathetic and just well, yeah, because you can't do what it's been asking you to do. And so it's been calling for that action for many, many years. You don't do it. And so it says, well, this isn't working. So let's let's just shut the system off for a while. We won't ask for the the action anymore. And so that's why the people are depressed. And as soon as you get to the cause of it, what, what has your mind been asking you to do and you resolve it, then your mind stops calling for the action. And wow. then the depression will lift. You had a great example of a lady that you worked with, um, Rebecca uh, Gregory, was it, um, mm-hmm. from the Boston. Can you tell us that story? Because that was a real clear example of this exact thing. Yeah. So Rebecca came to see me five years after the Boston Marathon. Um, she was three feet from the first bomb that went off. And so her son was sitting at her feet. So when the bomb went off, luckily she shielded him, but she took the brunt of the blast. She lost her left leg. And five years later, she's having post-traumatic stress, right? And she says, like, I have nightmares every night. And she says, I heard about your program. And she says, I heard that you can clear this in four hours. She says, it sounds too good to be true. But she says, I'm completely desperate. So I'll try anything. And so she came in and sat down. And what I explained to her as she started to talk is, I said, Rebecca, do you know why you're shaking and crying as you're talking to me right now? And she says, well, because I'm talking about what happened to me. And I said, that's right. But your mind thinks a bomb is about to go off. And it's trying to get you to run. And I said, but there's no bomb going off. It's just information about a bomb that went off. But your mind doesn't know that. And that she'd never heard before. And so what we did is over the next four hours, we got her mind to reset that high definition data that had been stored about the bombing into a regular alpha brainwave state, right? Where it's very safe and peaceful. So she could recall it and she could talk about it without the emotion. Because now we're not going for happy, right? You know, it's still sad that it happened. But what we're trying to stop is that dysregulation of the fear that the the call for the run that stopped. And you could watch her testimonial on her on our site. And she just talked about she goes, I just couldn't believe that you could stop that. And and then now she can go out and she spoke all over the country. You know, she was she's a very high profile lady who did a lot of great work in trying to help people, but she was still suffering with post-traumatic stress yeah, yeah, going out trying to help people who were experiencing post-traumatic stress. Oh, she knew what it was like. <laughs> she, she was living it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, same thing. I, I tell a story, which another dramatic one was a U.S. Army sniper who had to shoot and kill a 12 year old boy. Oh, God. And when I first sat down and talked to him, he was just sobbing. And he said, I just can't live like this anymore. And by the time we were finished, he could then describe everything that happened that day, including shooting. And he said to me, he goes, how the bleep did you do this? Like, how am I able to talk about it now? And I said, for eight years, your mind's been trying to get you not to pull the trigger. Mm. And you can't go back in time. But your mind knows you're not pulling the trigger now. So it stopped calling for the action. It's just information now. And so is this similar to EMDR? Um, I did a few sessions of EMDR when we lost our little baby boy a couple of years ago. And in the, at the time when I was doing it, I, I thought, ah, this isn't working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when I look back on that traumatic event, I no longer have the response really to it's sad, 
but I don't, but I'm not like, like I was in the months after that. Um, And I don't, I wouldn't say I'm completely, you know, out the other end of, of that particular trauma. There's, there's been more since that I'm still dealing with. Um, But it definitely did something. And I don't know what, it was a lot of eye shifting and doing things. What was, is that similar to what you do or is it different? Yeah, I studied EMDR. So what we do, so that's a technique, some of the techniques they use in EMDR I'll use. Um, But I think what we've done is enhanced it even more. I've made Mm -hmm. it even quicker and even more um, comprehensive. Yep. And EMDR, how many sessions did you do in EMDR? I think I did four or so. Yeah, so they're going to do between four, eight, ten, right? We're doing one. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And so I wasn't sure immediately after it had done anything, but I, I must admit, yeah. yeah. And it does, because what it's doing is getting that memory reprocessed, which is what we're doing. But we do it much simpler. Like, I don't need much detail at all. In fact, I've sat with people, you know, a person, you know, say a woman had been raped, sexually assaulted. The last thing she wants to sit there and do is start mm. describing what happened to her. Mm. Mm. So what I do is I say, we got a, we got three different ways of doing this. One, you can talk about it if you'd like to, and I'm going to take you through the techniques, right, to get your mind to reprocess it. Or two, I'm just going to do this strictly visually. So I have no idea what you experienced. I'm not going to know any of the details, which feels very safe. Yeah. Or third, what I say is I'm going to teach you a new language, and it's called flowing. And there's only one word in the flowing language and it's flowing. So instead of saying, I walked into the room, you're going to say flowing, flowing, flowing. Every word's flowing. The (laughs) advantage to that is she has to go into memory to see it and bring up the images. Yeah. But I have no idea what it is. You don't have to hear it. Yeah. I don't need to hear it. And then I take her through basically a two to three minute technique. That's all. And at the end of that, it's updated. That's just incredible. And, and my wife used uh, flowing with me, right? Because there were some things that would, <laughs> for me, she didn't want to share. Fair enough. Right? Yeah. And that was fine. Yeah. And so I, I tell them, whichever way you want to do it. I said, <laughs> if, if I needed to know, I would ask. I said, but if I'm asking, it's just from curiosity. Yeah. But it's not necessary. That is radically different, right? For people who have experienced really severe trauma. And it's very, very, you know, safe and very pain-free. And what, so what is it, you know, what, you know, when we have talk therapies where we, you know, go to a counsellor and we spend years sometimes working through our childhood traumas and our whatever traumas have happened since and, and we don't seem to get anywhere, which is a lot of the time, it might feel good in the moment that you're sharing and being able to express yourself, but it doesn't really work. In my experience, um, at least, what what is the difference there? You know, like are we just reliving and actually enhancing these memories when we just talk about them all the time and not actually deal so. with them? I believe in a lot of cases that's what they're doing or trying to desensitize you to it. You know, if yeah. you talk about it enough, maybe it doesn't feel as dramatic. Yeah. Um, and, and talk therapy has its place, so I'm I'm not against it. I think where talk therapy is really good is when you're dealing with a current problem yeah current stress maybe in your marriage or whatever and learning how to handle what's going on right now where i think the difference between what we do is we're able to get the talk therapy much more effective when you take out all the old stuff that keeps aggravating the new stuff 
Yep. <laughs> so if you're in a current stressful situation and it's being aggravated because every time you talk about it, it's bringing in all the data of the old stuff, then it's very difficult to, to deal with. So yeah. that's, I think, what we do, which is really different and makes everything much more effective. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense to me. And with you going back to your daughter, because so we, she has is now managed to get on top of her Crohn's. I mean, with Crohn's is an incurable disease, apparently. That's what we were told. Um, yeah, and there's she, no cure for Crohn's. What did you do with her to actually? Because this is a physical thing, and there are a lot of people out there listening who probably have Crohn's or IBS or something like like an autoimmune disease or. Can yeah, how did it work out with her and and you know why is why is that sort of a really amazing story? Well, all, all I know is that after we took her through the program, she hasn't had a Crohn's flare up. So I, I I'm not saying that we can cure Crohn's with our program. We're well, not allowed to say but what that. I, so. <laughs> but, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what I do know is that after she went through the program, she hasn't had a Crohn's flare up. So yeah. to me, there's a correlation between her nervous system. Right. Mm, and the activation of her Crohn's. And so once we got that settled down, so Crohn's could be may not be just from that. There could be other reasons for it. So you never know. So somebody could do our program and not have that same reaction. But what we do see is a lot of different because when we talk about I believe that this imagine we're like a cell phone. You plug in your cell phone at night. Right. We go to sleep. We charge up. We wake up with 100 percent of our energy then how much of that energy do you have available, right, to do maintenance? So if you've got a lot of maintenance and repair issues, you're draining a lot of energy. Oh, yeah. And, and if your mind is looping through a lot of trauma, that's pulling a lot of energy away from your ability to do maintenance, right, and repairs. Yep. And so I talk about when I, I played hockey, which is a pretty brutal sport. Mm. I had six concussions, 60 oh, wow. stitches. And I never missed a hockey game. Now, at the time, they just said, you just heal fast, right? Faster than most people. What I didn't realize is I believe the reason I healed fast was because I was getting much more maintenance done yep. at nighttime when I slept because I didn't have a lot of trauma that my mind was constantly looping through. So it wasn't wow. pulling energy away. Wow. So I, if I'm getting two or three times the maintenance and restorative sleep, of course, I'm going to heal faster. Oh, How could I not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and makes then, a whole lot of sense, really. You know. Yeah, and and that's why I've been healthy all my life. I just don't get sick. So super um, immune system, and very powerful immune system that can fight whatever comes at me. And again, we talk about vitamin C. If ever I feel a little tickle in my throat or I start to feel that. I just pound in vitamin C, you know, 4,000, 5,000 milligrams exactly. of vitamin C, exactly. and it's gone. Knocks it right out every time. <laughs> the immune system jumps into gear because you don't have these stresses. So when we talk about stress being so detrimental, you know, we talk about it all the time, you know, stress is bad for us and, what you know, excessive stress. There are good hermetic stresses where we go for exercise or we get in the sauna or we do cold therapy. And these are, you know, short temporary stresses that cause uh, cascades of, of, of changes in the body that make us stronger. But when we're exposed to chronic stress, which is like what we're talking about, traumatic events, and and these can be 
you know, like I, I also wanted to say, this is not just, you know, somebody's died, someone's legs been blown off, someone's, you know, de- been to war. These are not just those big, big traumatic things. These are these daily little things that start to add up as well that can be traumatic stresses, can't they? It's not yeah. just the big ones. That's what I, I wrote my second book called Emotional Concussions. So they're those bumps, right? That little concussion that you feel like, oh, I'm okay. Right. Yeah. I had a bump on my head, but now I seem to be okay. Those add up. Those little emotional concussions can add up or can also get connected to other ones. Mm -hmm. And so you don't realize how they're affecting you. So I've had people come in who will say, you know, I've never had any real trauma in my life. I've been fine. You know, there's nothing wrong. And then all of a sudden the waterworks will start when they start thinking about something that happened to them when they were a child. You know, um, as an example, I had a lady come in. She had been um, adopted by the stepfather. Her mother got pregnant at 18, um, didn't marry the father, that married another gentleman who then ended up adopting her and having two other children. And so when she was about six years of age, the original, her natural father wanted to meet her. And her stepfather said something to the effect that you were a mistake. And she said, I hated my stepfather. I made his life, right, agony for him. She had never connected up that event. She just said, I just never liked him. I gave him such a hard time all the time. She goes, my brother and sister loved him. She says, "I, I just hated him. And it came down to that event. And so in her mind, right, once we got and got that event resolved, and here's how we resolved it. I said, is it possible? So once I've got you in this very, very peaceful, restorative mindset, right, then we start looking at some of this information. So when we looked at it, she was crying when she talked about, she said, I remember my stepfather saying that, that I was a mistake. When we look at it, when she's in this very restorative mindset, I said, is it possible that what he said isn't what he meant? Is it possible that's a saying that people say, oh, that was a mistake, but they didn't mean you're the mistake, Yeah. right? It Mm. probably wasn't the best thing for your, your mother to have a baby at 18 out of wedlock, right? However, that that had never really occurred to her that 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 could because a six year old child doesn't have enough life experience to understand that statement. So in her in her mind, I was a mistake. He thought I was a mistake. And so as we're going through this, all of a sudden she said to me, she says, I just had this flood of energy coming into my chest right now. And she says, and you know what just came into my mind? Him sitting there braiding my hair when I was little. She said, he was a good man. I just never gave him a break. Mm. And now I sort of see what my brother and sister saw. He really was a good guy, right? Just but in her one mind, event, just one, one event. slip of the tongue, so to speak, or, you know, taken the wrong way or, you know, an adult conversation that a child's misconstrued. It doesn't even have to have bad intent behind it. With sometimes and no ill intent. This. No. Yeah. My, yeah. my wife had a similar situation where when she was really little, she's living in this traumatic household and gets invited to when she's like six, seven years of age to a tea party by the mothers in the neighborhood. And her grandmother dresses her all up nice and pretty. And she goes there. And I remember her telling me the story and crying. And she says, when she got there, 
the mothers, as she walked in, looked at her and one of the mothers said, oh, look at this one. This is going to be a real heartbreaker. And the <laughs> other women are gorgeous. like, oh, yes, this is going to be a real heartbreaker. <laughs> My wife, as a child, has been so hurt already. What she hears is they see something bad in her. Wow. She's Completely going to be a person wrong. who grows up and hurts people. Right? Oh. And she says she felt sick to her stomach. She just wanted to go home. Wow. And Completely and took the wrong as an in. adult, right, still had that impact on her until we got it resolved. And so these Those, are these little things that as parents, that makes you go, oh, my God, what damage have I done? <laughs> Just because yeah. I yelled at the kids the other day because I couldn't have any lollies or something if I damaged them. It yeah. does make you feel a bit panicky about, you know, all the, all the trauma that you be, could, could be causing to your kids. So I actually, my wife and I are working that. on a third book, like for just talking about that on how those kinds of things, after studying our program, saying, how can we help parents, right, be able to understand the impact those words? Because again, with the best of intentions, mm. right, you could be saying a, a particular phrase or saying or action that is being misinterpreted by somebody who doesn't have any kind of experience. Yep, Absolutely. And it yeah. can have far-reaching effects that was way beyond what it should have been, you know. Another have... great example. I had a lady who, again, same thing, no trauma in my life, great childhood, you know. And I said, can you come up with any kind of an event that you remember, right, that was, you know, upsetting or disturbing? And so she says, and she had to think about it. And then she says, yeah, she said, I remember one day, she said, I was in church. She says, I was about six years old. And she says, and all of a sudden I see her eyes starting to fill up as she's starting to talk and she's starting to choke up. And she says, I was talking and my grandmother took out the brush from her purse and hit me on the head with it and said, stop talking, you're in church. And then the waterworks came and she says, I just realized I lost my voice that day. Oh, wow. She says, I don't speak up stop for myself. Talking. I don't. Yeah. And that had never connected to her. And she realizes, I just let people tell me what to do. She says, I don't ever speak up for myself. And that was a revelation to her that she had never connected. And it was such a minor thing. A minor, did her did grandmother, grandmother try to do never, that? No. no. It was just like, stop talking, you're in church, right? Yeah. yeah. Just which, little things you know, like Wow. And another one, which is really fascinating, just to show you how the subtlety of it. A gentleman telling me that his father, who never really, you know, was an angry person or whatever, but there was one particular time, he says, my father really hurt me. And it was shocking to me. And, you yeah. know, and he started to tear up. And, I, and as he explained it, what he said is his father hit him on the back, tapped him on the back of the head. He says, but he felt like he just whacked him like full speed until he realized he said, I'm thinking about it now. My father wore this big ring. And so when he, his father probably meant a tap, yeah. but the ring was like a shock, like yeah. a big hit. So to the child, you really unloaded on me. Yeah. Right. But he probably didn't mean to, right. And probably couldn't understand why his son was overreacting to this little tap on the head. Right. But then again, that was a situation that affected the way it was a, an event that he said his father overreacted and he realized he probably didn't mean yep. to 
to do it the way he did it, but had an effect on on him. And then you add to that whole mix, you know, your genetic predisposition to either having, you know, the warrior gene or the warrior gene, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the whether you hold on to adrenaline and anxiety and have more anxiousness in, in general, you know. And like I remember as a kid, my mum saying to me, you were just such a sensitive kid. Like you would cry at the movies if Bambi got you know, hurt or something. She just couldn't take me to any movie or anything because I was just a very sensitive, always trying to rescue the world kid, you know, um, and try to trying to atone for everybody else's misdemeanors that they did. And, you know, I probably stole on that <laughs> mindset. Yeah. Um, um, and that, you know, so you have this genetic thing that you come in with and then you add on some of these things. So while somebody may have had a much more traumatic childhood, you can still react with that, those, you know, if you've got that disposition much more yeah. violently or much more strongly to those as well. So we're a very complex little little beings. It's a wonder any of us manage to do anything, really. <laughs> well, what I, I refer to that when I start talking is your atmospheric conditions. <laughs> your atmospheric conditions, you know, Joe Polish, who, who you know yeah, as well, that, we he loves love, that yeah. saying, is I, he goes, I love the way you say that because your atmospheric conditions are different than my atmospheric conditions. Yeah. So if you grew up in very dark, stormy, atmospheric conditions and I didn't, but then, of course, I'm going to see the world differently because yeah. I'm going to filter through those. And you know and, what Joe talks about too is, um, uh, you know, as a mutual friend of ours, he's an incredible guy, um, addiction and taking away the, the shame and the guilt and the, all of that that's associated and the blame for uh, and and seeing people for, for actually what's happening instead of apportioning blame. And that, that stuck with me, what he said about that. Um, I think it was in a film that I watched that he made. Um, like, let's remove some of the judgments that we have on people who are dealing with drug addictions or alcohol addictions or so. you know, we may not have liked their behavior. We may, you know, want to help them get out of that situation, but judging people when we never walked in their shoes, when we never had any of those experiences that that person has, how the hell are we, any of us really able to judge other people? And that's what I talk about in the program too, because what I, I get to, as I say, think about if, if our, if our brain is a filter, right. And we take water, which are our thoughts and we pour the water through the filter and it comes out clear. Right. But if we pack mud into that filter and we pour the water through it and it comes out muddy, we say, well, what's wrong with that water? Mm. There's nothing wrong with the water. It filtered through the mud. How is it not going to be muddy? Yeah. Which is your thoughts. Yeah. And so if you've had a lot of packed mud into your filter, right, and your thoughts come out very dark, right, and very muddy, right, how could you not do it? Yeah. And so when I sit down with somebody who's in addiction, what I say to them is I said, it's impossible for you to not have done what you did based on the way your mind filters. Yeah. So that doesn't, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your mind, right? All you've done is you've had a certain set of experiences and your mind filters through those. And I said, I've never had a drink of alcohol in my life. I've never had a drug in my life, but I've never experienced your pain. So if I had experienced your pain and you had experienced my life, you would be sitting where I am and I'd be sitting where you are. Yep. How could I have done it differently? Yeah. 
It's not, a, what I say is addiction is not about character, willpower, morals, mm. or ethics, right? And so you take that, that's what Joe and I have talked about. You take away that shame and guilt because shame and guilt is what got them into it and probably it keeps you there. Yep. And so uh. when you take away that, so um, there's a young lady, Michelle, who, when she, when I met her, she's 33, 17 years since she was 16 in active addiction. I mean, everything you can imagine. And the first thing I sit down with her, and as I say, Michelle, there's nothing wrong with you. You don't have a disease. You've built up a series of codes to protect you from the pain. And I said, you've had a lot of trauma. She goes, well, how do you know I've had a lot of trauma? And I said, I can hear it in your voice, right? Your voice is shaky, right? And so I can hear the trauma in your voice. And I said, what I'm going to do is show you how we're going to update and reset that so that you now can then filter properly. And then that's going to stop the need to feel better. I said, that's the only reason that you wanted to feel better. And so she was smoking cigarettes as well, as well as the drugs. Within four days, she completely stopped smoking. She hasn't smoked since. It's over two years. Has never touched a drug since. Wow. She had zero withdrawal. And I said, the withdrawal is coming from the mind saying, you better get it or we're going to die. Yeah. So I believe the mind creates the physical pain, which they call withdrawal, because it's saying, if you don't get this, we're going to die. So it's going to create physical pain to make you, it's like bending your arm up your back. Because I've talked to drug addicts who will tell me that as soon as their dealer says they're on their way to bring the drug, the withdrawal stops. Wow. Because they know they're going to get it. So the brain just that's, shuts up because you were going, you're, the, you're getting that's it. In the mind. That's in the mind. Because how could the mind crave heroin? I said, I said, if the mind could crave anything, what would it crave? Water. Or if the body could crave anything, what would it crave? Water. water but we don't have waterholics. We don't have water rehab centers. <laughs> <laughs> that's what people would be craving. When you're running, right? You no, you're craving water. water. You, yeah. <laughs> right. But you didn't have a problem drinking too much water. No. And when you're right. when you're in the say like a desert, like I've crossed lots of deserts, and there was one desert where I only had two liters of water a day, you're not hungry. You're not anything no. else but thirsty. That's the thirsty. only thing you can think about, and that's the only thing that you want. And then you yeah. know, the addiction to chocolate that I <laughs> that I had in my normal life is gone. <laughs> sure, <laughs> because moment. it's survival based. Your brain is survival yeah. based, and it it's wants more to survive. The, the water. And so, if somebody says, "I'm going to take away your drug." Your mind says, but we'll die. It's an error message. And so that's why it will create the physical pain to get you to go get it. And as soon as you get it, you feel better, right? That says nothing about your character, willpower, or morals, or ethics. That's just biology and chemistry, right? And the brain is so powerful to survive, it will do amazing things to stay out of pain. Yeah. And this is why the evolution of how we've evolved in you know, where our DNAs come from. And then you stick us in this artificial environment that we've made for ourselves, you know, like looking at, like, say, food addictions, for example. You know, you've got a McDonald's on every street corner and fast food everywhere and ultra-processed. And with our old DNA, we're programmed to go and look for fat and salt and sugar. Um, And that's what we're, you know, wanting to makes get. Us feel good. It makes us feel good. It, it it stops the pain. It stops the temporarily, you know, unfortunately. And it's available now everywhere. And this is where, you know, we get into this whole problem with, you know, obesity and uh, all sorts of 
new, you know, degenerative diseases and the follow-on from that. And we're really just fighting against our biology, you know. And, and when does it stop the pain? Right For now. five minutes. And I yeah. eat that Big Mac, yeah. I feel better awesome. right now. Yeah. Right? And afterwards, Am I, I like logically she's... thinking about if I continue to do this, I'm going to destroy my 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 gut? No, because all I want to do is stop the pain. Yeah. So I, I'm working on a smoking cessation program. And this is really interesting. I don't know if you've ever heard of it explained this way, but this is how I explain smoking. I'll say to somebody, what do you think you're addicted to? Most people will say it's nicotine and, you know, oh, nicotine is harder to get off of than, than heroin. Right. And I'll say, so you think you're addicted to nicotine? And I'll say, yes. And I say, what if I tell you you're not addicted to nicotine? And I said, well, I'm not. And I said, no, you're not addicted to nicotine. I said, what happens is, is that when you smoke a cigarette, the nicotine enters your bloodstream and goes to your brain. I said, now nicotine has almost the exact chemical compound of a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. Oh. So when that uh, nicotine hits your brain, your brain thinks it's acetylcholine. Acetylcholine, right, is the neurotransmitter that's the precursor to the release of dopamine. Oh, wow. So what happens is your brain then starts releasing more acetylcholine to start (laughs) releasing dopamine. I said, what you're addicted to is feeling better. Yep. So go and, and have so, some eggs instead because that's a, got a super calling. Stop your plumbing cigarettes. <laughs> but you've trained your brain, yeah, right, to, to associate. recognize, to associate. The associative memory is what's creating the addiction. And oh. it says when we take that, we feel better. It doesn't understand the chemistry that's involved. That's all you're doing. Mm. So now you're the, your best friend that you sit with all by yourself, right outside that building, because nobody wants to sit with you while you're smoking, right? Yep. Now the cigarette becomes your best friend, and somebody yep. says, "Well, you can't hang out with your best friend anymore," right? It's like, "Oh no, I'm not giving that up." Yeah. So what you have to do is we have to create a replacement for your best friend. Uh-huh. The reason why it's so hard to quit is because somebody's coming along and saying, Lisa, you just can't hang around with Debbie anymore. <laughs> Debbie's not good for you. And you say, but I don't have any other friends. I feel better when I hang out with Debbie. Yep. So we've got to find a replacement for Debbie and another way to do it. And then your brain will then create another way, right? To feel better. Wow. Right? Which is healthier. That's how you break addiction. That is that is fascinating. So how do you do that with something like heroin, though? Like, what do you replace it with? You can't, you know, there isn't, or is there a, a well, thing here's, that we Here's can... the best thing is once we get that unresolved trauma cleared, you automatically start feeling better. Because you don't have the pain and therefore you don't need the... Then we work on the associative memory. So you, after we go through our four-hour program, we have a series of audios. So if you're in addiction, I have a 30-day addiction audio series that is basically getting your mind to reset the neural pathways of the behavior. But it's a lot easier to do that when we don't have the pain activating it. Wow, okay. Now all we have so to do is work on the pathways. New rituals and new, new pathways and start questioning, why did I used to do that, right? I remember I used to do that, but it didn't make any sense. Now your logical part of your brain can get involved and help because there's no pain involved. Yep. And now you can use that intellectual part of your brain to say, this doesn't make any sense. Let's come up with a better way of doing it. It couldn't do that before when the pain the kept biology. saying, shut up, get out of the way. We're going to die. 
Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so you're taking <laughs> that whole piece of the puzzle there away and then retraining the brain after the fact, after, after the four-hour program. But So that is a, an essential part of it as well to reestablish yes. new neural pathways and grooves in the brain to do have have behaviors that change but without that first piece of the puzzle all of yeah. that you're overriding we, a very very difficult system to override yeah we, and, we're dealing with our evolution impossible yeah, yeah i'd say impossible for for many many people in many different situations and people are dying left right and center of addictions and you know, the follow-on effects. And they, yeah, and we can't stop them. And and they're told that they're broken. Yeah, they're and defeated, they're useless. And, and they, they need to surrender. Yeah. And then understand that they will never, ever be better. And, and, and you're, you know, you're a world-class supreme athlete. Can you imagine with all the training that you did, if I was your coach and I said to you, Lisa, you're going to have to put in this tremendous amount of hard work, but you will never win a race. You'll never accomplish anything but you've just got to put up the hard work. You would much sums up my career, actually. <laughs> no, I'm looking for the little medal at the end of this. I'm looking for some reward at the yeah. end of this. Yeah. And what they're telling you is, no, you'll never be able you'll to You'll never get it. And they take away all your power. You know, they take away all, you're disempowered and you're like, oh, well, you're never going to, you're never going to do this. I mean, I never listened to any of that rubbish. I don't believe believe you train any human being to accomplish any goal by telling them that they need to surrender to it. Yeah. That they're they're going to just have to accept the fact that this has control of them. Yeah. I now I I'm not going to argue that they haven't helped people because they have. So, but I just say, wouldn't it be better to take the approach of that you can defeat this and you can overpower it and you can take back control because now you understand the science behind it. Exactly. And why it happened. I love that. That's my approach. You're, you're, you're you're singing from the same chorus sheet there. Cause I, you know, like, um, and, and whether this is an addiction or whether this is a diagnosis for something and you're told there's no chance and there's no hope, the amount of people that I get writing to me uh, because of my story with my mum telling me I was written off, I was told I'd never do this, or my loved one was, uh, and now look at us go. You know, how many times have people been written off when they didn't need to be written off? Because some expert has told them that there is no hope. No, that means you don't know. (laughs) Not that there isn't somebody in the world that that knows. And that approach, I think, in you know, whether it's addiction or whether it's dealing with a big health crisis or um, problems, you know, we've got to take this approach. Somebody out there like Dr. Don Wood might have a solution for my problem. And that's the whole point of the show is to be able to bring those people and their messages to, to people who need it so they can connect with those people and maybe, you know, get help with a, with a problem. And I certainly want to get help with uh, some of the trauma that I've been through um, recently and, and, you know, hope to get over it because, you know, no matter how many, like I've always you know, have had a strong mindset in some ways. I'm incredibly strong when it comes to sport and overcoming obstacles and taking on big challenges, but I am completely weak in other areas. And I know my own weaknesses and my own, you know, I'm very self-aware of my limitations and stuff. And um, we're all working on different areas of our lives. And I might be a black belt at doing this, but I'm very much a white belt at doing that, you know, and, yep. and finding 
new information and new things that can help you improve different areas of life, I think is just, you know, just absolutely gold. So Dr. Don, can you tell us where can people find you? What courses do you have? What books do you have? And, you know, how do people reach out to you and and work with you? Well, I know, I I think we were going to do something for the listeners who are listening to your show. So if you go to get G-E-T tip, T-I-P-P, that's the name of our program, T-I-P-P tip. T-I-P-P, yep dot com slash lisa mm-hmm. i think you'll get all the information so it's gettip.com slash lisa and then all the information on how to get the program learn more um i think there's some offers i think that you're doing in there as well for yep. information that so your team has set up for me so that's that's absolutely brilliant so gettip.com with two p's all the information about dr don's work his courses his books you know we'll we'll um make sure that people can get access to that. Dr. Don, thank you very much for your time today. It's been very, very valuable. Over the last few weeks, I've you know, really been enjoying studying some of your work and um, it's given me a little bit of a hope on my horizon after you know going through some pretty traumatic things in the last five years that I need to sort of uh, work through. And you know, realizing that on a day-to-day basis, uh, half of my energy now like I often look back because I'm no longer doing the, the ultra marathons and um, I don't have the energy to do them anymore, not because of my age or anything else. I think because a lot of my energy is just going into, you know, fighting demons. a lot of da- demons. demons. Yeah. Just, the trauma yeah. of, you know, losing my dad, going through what I did with my mum, losing the babies, you know, um, there's a heck of a lot of stuff that's gone on in that time. Um, and all of us are facing these types of situations. Your situation may be different than mine, but at some time in life, life's going to come along and give you a bang over the yep. head, <laughs> literally. And your or mind from, is you know. not okay with some of those things, and no. it wants to. And so, when people say to me, "Oh, I sabotage myself," right, or I'm doing these things and it's it's interfering, I say, "You can't sabotage yourself. The brain is not designed to do anything but survive." Yeah. And so it, so people it say, well, why would I go and do this crazy thing over here that would sabotage my career or sabotage my relationship? And I say, it's not trying to sabotage, it's trying to protect you from pain. So it will go into crazy areas to protect you from the pain <laughs> wow. that looks like sabotage. And that's how people describe it. I say, it's impossible that your brain cannot sabotage yourself. Even when people say, well, you know, how do you explain somebody taking their own life or committing suicide? I said, they're not trying to die. They're trying to stop the pain. The pain. Wow. The pain is more powerful than death. Wow. Right? That's the way that I tell you the story about the German sniper. No, do tell me that. This is, I know we were trying to wrap up here, but oh, no, this good. was fascinating when I read this story. It was about a German sniper from World War II that when they fought against the Russians, he said the Russians had almost no weapons. He said, but they had a lot of people. So their their plan was to charge at the the German stations, right, and try to overwhelm them with people. You know, they were carrying sticks and shovels or whatever they had. And he says, and they would. They would. I remember uh, somebody I knew told me about that. They were a German during the war, and they said the Russians would just overwhelm them, get into the bunkers, and then just, you know, take their weapons and try to kill them. He says, so this sniper for the Germans, he said his job was to shoot them. And he says, but every time they would shoot them, another wave would come. And he says, and it was just endless, endless. He says, and he says, and then I figured out how to stop them. He says, I shot them in the stomach. 
He says, then what happened was, is that when the next wave would come, they would see they all stop. the comrades lying on the ground screaming in pain. <sighs> and he says, and that was the bigger deterrent wow. than to actually dying. And wow. he says, and that what slowed it down. Isn't wow. that, this shows you the power of the mind not wanting to be in pain, yeah. what it will do to go to avoid pain. And this is the desperation that some poor people get into. And that's yes. what they're trying to do when they commit suicide is just stop the pain. Stop the pain is so overwhelming that they would rather stop the pain. They're not thinking about dying. They're thinking about stopping the pain mm. because the brain won't try to die. It will try to stop the pain before that. Wow. And this is where our biology is just too simple in the fact that it doesn't think through the logical stuff. It just, just works in the here and the now. Like you said, None there's that no future projection. Yeah, there's no, yeah. the consequences of me doing this are X, Y, Z. They don't think that far. It can't because the reason and logic are overridden every time by survival. Yeah. And, by the incredible and survival pain. in this exact millisecond. <laughs> that, that, this, this knowledge is just powerful on so many levels, and that's just given me a new dimension of how, how powerful this is. And again, it's about you know, taking the blame off people and let's find ways to fix this and to work through that and to help people so that we don't so just apportion blame and, and you're a person lacking willpower and you're a person with addictions and you're lesser than me. We yes. all have biology and we are all struggling on some level. You know, most of us are just better at, you know, doing the day-to-day stuff. But, you know, then, yeah. but um, yeah, I think you're, 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 you're a humanitarian and the work that you're doing is really, really helping people with Dr. Don. So thank you very much for the work you do. Um, well, thank you. Very that's, that's excited. What I loved when I first met you and Joe introduced us, I saw the work you're doing. You're doing Phenomenal stuff. So I was so excited to meet you and get an opportunity to share with you, you know, and work together because we've got a a big message out there. We've both got to get our messages out there. We've both got to help, yeah, uh, spread this to a a few more people around the world. And this is what this episode's done. So thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Don Wood. Thank you. I enjoyed it. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com.